Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made, and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from, and if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There's a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery and equine communication, human and horse relationship building. Peter has actually had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the one you see in the podcast picture with me, and he was spot on about everything, so I can highly recommend his work personally. You'll find the links to Peter's work in the show notes. I'd like to say a big thanks to our latest Patreon subscriber, Julia Tonkin. Jules, you are a champion. Thank you so much for your support and I look forward to catching up with you soon. In this episode, I speak with Paul Sorter. And Paul is not a horse person, believe it or not. Paul is a scientist. He is actually the Chief Scientific Officer of Equisec, who are one of the few places in the world you can test your horse for PSSM2. Recently, I was made aware of a disease called PSSM1 in a friend's horse, and she is my horse Gypsy's half-sister. So I got Gypsy tested as well, as she was exhibiting some of the symptoms. Gypsy came back negative, but as I am who I am, and I do what I do, then my interest was piqued. And this happened because I asked more and more people about PSSM1 and realised there was little to no awareness of this condition. So I decided to find someone who did have knowledge, and this is how I came across Paul and his work, because when we tried to research it, there were three friends, me and two friends, who were really looking, trying to figure this thing out, and there was so much conflicting evidence and um, information out there and it was quite frustrating so whether or not my horse was positive um, it didn't matter I just needed to know what on earth the thing was and how it worked and I wanted some clarity around it so then I could bring awareness to it as well personally Um, but I have a podcast so I had to make a podcast on it and this is how I came across Paul and his work I found him on Facebook of course Most of the podcasts that I do are of value to share as they can support changes to training and handling of horses all over the world. As you know, I usually interview trainers. This podcast is one of the most important ones for you to share as every single horse person in the world needs to be made aware of PSSM, 
1 and 2. And if you are ever buying a horse, this test needs to be done if your breed is on the long list that is known to have had the disease. Together, we can make a difference by talking about it with other horse owners and understanding the symptoms to look out for. This is especially important for trainers to be aware of, uh, you know, especially as the gait abnormalities is something they'll easily see when working with PSSM2 horses once they have awareness of this. And the tying up for PSSM1 is another one that they'll see a lot of. So have a listen to the podcast with Paul, take it all in, and then please share and open up our horse world to PSSM1 and PSSM2. And let's make a positive difference to the lives of horses because this podcast is not just for people who work in gentle, ethical, beautiful ways with horses. This is for anyone who uses any training method who simply owns a horse. So please share this one far and wide and um, let's do a great thing for horses all around the world. Here is Paul. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. It's, uh, it's a deep dive I'm doing into this wonderful world of PSSM, and uh, I was so happy to find your name. So on that note, can you just tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So let me give you my background. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a scientist, and I got my PhD in genetics in 1980, a long time ago. And I've been, I was working as a Drosophila or a fruit fly geneticist until I had a career transition in 2000. So I moved into bioinformatics, which is uh, a field that has to do with handling large amounts of information about genomes, which was made possible by the Human Genome Project. And I worked at the Jackson Laboratory, which is, you know, your uh, listeners can be forgiven if they never heard of that, but that's the center of the universe for mouse genetics. Uh-huh. And I worked there until 2011. And then I moved to New Mexico and worked at the University of New Mexico until 2014. Uh, and I transitioned to the private sector. So in 2015, I founded Equiseek, And that's a biotechnology company that develops and sells genetic tests for horses. So we initially looked at the uh, market for genetic testing in quarter horses because um, unlike other breeds, stallions were required at the time if they're registered with AQHA to be tested for a panel of five inherited diseases that are at a high incidence in quarter horses. And that includes PSSM1, which we'll talk about more in detail. Mm. Uh, So there's another kind of exercise intolerance that's fairly common in quarter horses called PSSM2. And that turns out to be a collection of disorders that doesn't affect carbohydrate metabolism. So in 2015, we introduced our first genetic tests for PSSM2. And we've added tests until our current panel of tests includes uh, six genetic variants. So we've had a lot of large-scale studies that we've done to get there. Uh, We've been recruiting horses through Facebook. And these are experimental tests that have uh, acceptance by early adopters, but they're not quite mainstream yet. So uh, we just recently submitted our first manuscript for peer review in a scientific journal. And we expect publication within a month or so. That's a real milestone for us. And uh, as I said before we started, I'd be glad to talk more about the science, but I can get into the weeds pretty fast. So let's be <laughs> practical for horse owners. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's great to know where it is and, and where you've been. And let's start with the very uh, simple question of what is PSSM? So PSSM <clears throat> is an exercise intolerance syndrome. So 
Um, back in, I believe it was 1990, there was a pretty good description by Stephanie Valberg of what PSSM is. <clears throat> and so this is seen uh, quite commonly in quarter horses. So they will experience what's called tying up. And that used to be called Monday morning sickness. Uh, so a horse will be moving along, exercising, and then suddenly just freeze up. And it's an obvious distress. You can see muscle tremors or muscle fasciculations. Uh, typically, the level of uh, enzymes in the blood that indicate muscle damage will spike up. The urine could be the color of dark coffee, uh, which is myoglobin that's coming out of the damaged muscle. And the horses take a while to recover from that. So um, back in the, in the 90s, um, they did muscle biopsies on these horses. So you take a small piece of muscle and prepare it for microscopy. And you can see that there are enlarged glycogen granules. So glycogen is a polymer of sugar. Mm -hmm. And we use sugar for energy in our muscles. So the first thing you do when you start exercising is you burn all the glycogen that you have in your muscles. And does that, that comes from the blood. So is the sugar <laughs> stored in the blood and then goes into the muscle at exercise time? Well, um, a lot of a lot of what we eat is is either directly or converted into a sugar called glucose that is really essential for everything. It's a really central energy source, and we synthesize our own glucose sometimes from other precursors, and that gets taken up into cells, and it goes into a polymer called glycogen. So glycogen is just a polymer of a, a simple sugar called glucose. Mm -hmm. So glucose is a saccharide, a monosaccharide, and glycogen, like starch is a polysaccharide or a polymer of glucose. And then when you need quick energy, you burn that. So your liver has a lot of glycogen and your muscle has a lot of glycogen as a store of energy. Mm -hmm. So in 2008, uh, Dr. Molly McHugh, who's a collaborator of ours now, uh, doing her thesis work, discovered the genetic basis for PSSM. Uh, and that is uh, a defect in an enzyme called glycogen synthase. And that enzyme synthesizes glycogen out of sugar. So it, it's the enzyme that when the sugar goes into the muscle, it makes it into these granules for storing energy. And uh, so those horses can't effectively draw down on their energy reserves because it's like, okay, you know what a, a seesaw or teeter-totter is that kids play on, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a really big fat guy that sits on one end, you know, a little kid on the other side has no chance of pushing the thing down. Yeah. So the equilibrium is pushed far in the direction of glycogen synthesis, and it's really difficult for a horse to have access to that energy. So they tie up and their muscles tear up for reasons that we don't really understand. Mm, and so, so back in... It's and, a mutation of the gene, isn't it? Yes. And so um, that enzyme normally is very, very carefully regulated. And the specific mutation in glycogen synthase uh, prevents it from being regulated. So it's jammed on. So it's always synthesizing glycogen, no matter what the conditions are. And uh, so, so that's the uh, essence of PSSM, what's called now PSSM1. But in 2009, they published that there's a class of horses that show exercise intolerance, but they don't have that mutation. So they're slightly different. There are abnormalities that you see in muscle biopsy. They don't typically show the same symptoms of tying up, but they show um, what's called a shifting lameness. So suddenly the horse will be lame in one leg. And you can do x-rays and all that stuff, and you won't see anything. 
and then a couple weeks later it's a different leg. So it's lameness that moves around from muscle to muscle. And this is one of the reasons, this is the main reason why I wanted to get this out there because how many horses in the world, how many horse owners in the world are out there pulling their hair out about lameness that moves around their horse and they have no idea why. Right. And, and, you know, vets will have you do all kinds of expensive things. So, you know, the, the radiography, I guess that's not really cheap, but then they'll do stifle injections. They'll do this, all this other stuff and they never find anything. Mm. And so that's been 12 years since those first discoveries were made and they had no explanation for PSSM2. So we looked at that and we said, okay, um, we know the techniques that they use to discover the gene for PSSM1. So we know it has to be more than one gene. And we looked at some of the human disorders and that's how we got our insight uh, into these horse diseases and made our first discoveries. So I should tell you that um, all living things have a common origin. We all have the same genetic code. Mm -hmm. And mammals are all closely related to each other as far as this goes. Um, So different biological processes sort of evolve at different rates and muscle is a really fundamental thing So everything that's a vertebrate, you know, so from sharks to humans, uh, uses pretty much the same set of genes to make muscle and make it work. And there are human inherited disorders of muscle. And so we looked at the genes that have been identified for that. And we did whole genome sequencing on horses that have been diagnosed with PSSM2. And we found our, our first genetic variants that way. So these are just like the human disease. Um, but there's a lot more money spent on human disease than on horse disease. So that's how we've been able to do this. We're spending all our money on hay. Um, (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So can you tell me a little bit more about the variants in PSSM2? Because so in type 1, it's pretty straightforward that it's a mutation of the gene GYS1. Um, Mm And so what is a bit more about PSSM2? Because that's where it gets a little bit foggy in the research. Well, the the first thing that gets foggy about it, and and Molly McHugh had a a Facebook Live uh, video yesterday that I think it would be really helpful for everybody to watch. I watched it, so I will definitely post it because that's where I got a ton of my questions from. So (laughs) she said when she got started in this, you know, know, they go out for happy hour and they say, okay, we found this glycogen synthase mutation. Let's call that PSSM1. And then there are human glycogen storage disorders, and they're named with Roman numerals. And so they said, well, let's just call this other thing PSSM2. But they didn't know what it was, and they kind of guessed that it was a disorder of carbohydrate metabolism, but they guessed wrong, right? So it is not, first of all, it's not one disease. And second, it has nothing to do with carbohydrate metabolism. Oh, thank so, God. Because <laughs> it gets because re- there's a lot of, this is where the, the um, arguments start on Facebook and everything. Right, it's like we've right. got six different views here. Who is it yeah, that we listen yeah. to? So this is great. So, so, you know, what we could do is, is, you know, the first thing to say is that Dr. McHugh is a veterinarian as well. So she's very, very careful about what she says in the podcast. Mm-hmm. So she sticks to stuff that your vet would tell you as part of standard veterinary practice. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about this, I'm a scientist and we go off the track a little bit. So in the United States, that's like Dr. Anthony Fauci says one thing about COVID-19, but if you talk to the science community, they have ideas that he doesn't express that are guesses and hunches that are not quite at the level of clinical proof. 
Yeah. Okay. So we're going into that area right now. And this is why there's arguments because people say, well, I talked to my vet and they said the standard veterinary practice is this and they're correct. But the science is always a little bit ahead of what's going on clinically. Mm. So let me tell you about uh, P2, P3 and P4. So P2 is a variant of a gene called myotillin. And that is a part of uh, the structure of muscle. So if you look uh, at how, how muscle works, the basic mechanism was uh, discovered in the 1950s. And there's, a, there's two important muscle proteins that were discovered back then. Uh, one of them is called myosin, right? So that's you know, a muscle protein. Mm-hmm. And the other is called actin. And if you actually look what those proteins do in a muscle, actin makes something called thin filaments, and myosin makes something called thick filaments. And if you look at the structure of muscle in the EM, electron microscope, you'll see that um, an individual unit of muscle has, has sort of edges called Z-lines, and everything's attached to the Z-disc. So the actin fibers are attached to the Z-disc, and the thick filaments, the myosin fibers, are in the middle. And when a muscle contracts, the thick and thin filaments slide with respect to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, that only works if the thin filaments are anchored to the Z-disc, right? So, so that's what pulls the muscle to make it shorter because the, the actin thin filaments are attached to the Z-disc. Mm-hmm. So um, myotillin is one of the proteins of the Z-disc. And uh, P3, another one of our genes, is uh, filament C, which is also a Z-disc protein. And P4 is a mutation in myosinin 3, which is also a Z-disc protein. Mm-hmm. So, so far, we have mutations in Z-disc proteins that kind of weaken the Z-disc. And you can see this in horses that have this muscle disease because the Z-disc fragments. And you can see that in the electron microscope. If you take muscle tissue from these horses and look at it, you'll see what's called Z-disc streaming, and you'll see aggregates of Z-disc proteins that are off the Z-disc. So the muscle is breaking down because these proteins um, have mutations in them. And we originally thought that was because they're weakening the Z-disc. And that turns out probably not to be correct. Uh, What's happening is the proteins are not being incorporated into the Z-disc and they're sitting somewhere else in the muscle, but they continue to recruit other muscle proteins. So when muscle is being assembled, all of, I mean, it's, it's a, there are dozens of proteins that are part of this contractile apparatus and an isolated misfolded protein will start recruiting other muscle proteins. And so it'll make aggregates in the muscle that are not uh, supposed to be there and they're pulling proteins that are supposed to be part of the Z-disc. So you get this kind of breakdown of muscle tissue Mm -hmm. and you'll see that as muscle wasting. And uh, the cell actually has a way of scavenging misfolded proteins and aggregates and getting rid of them. But for some reason, at least in human beings that have uh, mutations in filament C, that mechanism doesn't work. And you just see these aggregates growing over time. So uh, people with mutations in this, you know, typically lose mobility in their 40s. And they have an abnormal gait that looks very much like the horse abnormal gait. Mm. And so that's PSSM 2, 3, and 4 is a, is having a well, similar effect to different well things? let me let me back up and say that everything that isn't pssm1 is pssm2 
So okay. P2, P3, and P4, and also P8 and K1 are all mutations that predispose to that bin of things that we call PSSM2. Okay. And, and it was called that, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure the nomenclature is going to change, but it's just a dumping ground for everything that isn't a disorder of glycogen metabolism, mm-hmm. right? So, so everything goes under that. The other term that you'll hear a lot is myofibrillar myopathy. Yes. And that is a human disorder. And it's originally, there's a class of human muscle disorders called limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Mm-hmm. And it's called limb girdle muscular dystrophy because your proximal limbs, so your upper arm and your upper legs, and your girdle, so your shoulder girdle and your pelvic girdle, uh, you have muscle wasting and weakness. And uh, so there's an uh, there's a uh, offshoot of those, a side branch of those, a subset of them, called myofibrillar myopathy because there's a particular uh, microscopic disorder that you see. This is Z-disc fragmentation and these aggregates that I talked about. So um, those are mutations in the genes that we've identified. So myotillin and filament C are known to be causes of myofibrillar myopathy, and that's why we looked at those genes. Mm. And then we were able to identify mutations which by evolutionary comparison looked damaging, and we've pursued that in hundreds of horses to see if they are. And it looks pretty solid. And is it possible to have more than one? Yes, yes. So you so can all have these... PSSM1 and 2 and 3, 4... Well, well, technically, you can't, those are disease states, right? So you can't have both PSSM1 and anything else. But as far as the genes go, you can both have the mutation for glycogen synthase and one of these others. And you can have multiple because all the genes are inherited independently. So, but as far as a veterinary diagnosis goes, if you have um, the glycogen synthase mutation, and you show symptoms of exercise intolerance, then you have PSSM1 by definition. Mm -hmm. And if you're negative for the glycogen synthase mutation and you have exercise intolerance, then you have PSSM2. So um, you can have the mutations that predispose to both states, but if you're positive for the glycogen synthase mutation, your vet will say this horse has PSSM1. So Mm -hmm. that's also misleading because it says that these disease states exclude each other, which they do not. You can have multiple uh, disease states, or you can have multiple mutations in the single horse, and we've seen plenty of that. So in, in, so just so I can get it clear in my head, so I could have, or my horse could have, the mutation of gene GYS1, so that is yes. PSSM1, and right. it could have this... Um, myotillin or filament C or disc. So it could have all of those. Yes, it does. It could. So, um, you know, typically when a horse has multiple variants, um, there, one of the mysteries has been, okay, why do some horses with PSSM1 do well using the recommended diet that the vets recommend, and why do some do poorly? And we've seen from the horse owners that we've interacted with that they say, well, my horse has PSSM1 and we can't manage it. So we tested for these other variants, and yes, it has one of these other variants. So on top of PSSM1, it has these mutations that predispose to PSSM2. Mm-hmm. So those cases turn out to be pretty hard to manage. Yeah, that's uh, where it gets so, quite sad. Yeah, PSSM1 alone, w- without any of these other things, is uh, rather manageable through diet and exercise. Yeah, and, and let's talk a bit more about that, but finish sure, what you were saying. Sure, let's do that. 
Yeah, yeah no, uh, so uh, the mutation that causes PSSM1 is old. Uh, it goes way back. So um, when it was originally discovered, there's a, a genetic technique looking at markers around the mutation to ask how old is this? How far back does this go? And they guessed about 800 years. But do you know about the Scythian horses? No. All right, so the Scythians were, uh, you know, uh, uh, people that believed that in the afterlife, you know, important people should be equipped with everything they needed. So when an important person was buried, they'd bury a chariot and four to six horses with them. And uh, so we have horses. <laughs> I like from, these people. <laughs> yeah. So Are the horses, we have horses already dead or did they kill the horses? Uh, they killed the horses. Okay. So don't like them uh, that much then. No, they're not that much. <laughs> they're not nice people. But anyway, they're gone. But that was 2,500 years ago. And mm -hmm. so those, uh, some of those uh, sites were excavated archaeologically. And 2,500 years is not a long time ago for DNA. So um, it's been possible to look at the DNA from horses 2,500 years ago. And the significance of that is horse domestication actually started 5,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So when you look at horses from 2,500 years ago, you're looking at halfway through domestication. You know, so early stages of domestication before mm -hmm. the modern breeds. And there is the glycogen synthase mutation is present in those horses. So the question is, you know, why is it a problem now and wasn't it a problem then? So um, horses are built to be kind of eating low-grade food all day long. So just grazing and grazing and grazing all day long and exercising all day long. Mm -hmm. And when we domesticated them, at least, uh, you know, they used to just be worked all the time. And now, you know, we stall them and we give them rich feed. And so along on. came so, the wheel. We put them in, instead of using them as transport, we put them inside of transport and take them. Right, right. So, yeah. so when you do that, you know, the capacity to store glycogen, you know, excessively becomes a problem. Because, I mean, especially people are giving them corn and oats and all kind of rich food, and they're sitting in a stall five days out of the week before mm -hmm. people come out and ride them on the weekend. So under those conditions, the mutation in glycogen synthase is a problem. But if horses are being worked every day and exercised every day and eating um, low-grade food that's not rich in carbohydrates, they don't really uh, exhibit symptoms. So it's more a change in how we use horses and how we manage them than a change in the incidence of the disease. Mm. And just on that, is this, this is a little bit mind-boggling for me as well because if there's excess glycogen in a muscle, you would think that exercise would help that, not... It, it, it does in general. Um, and so if those horses are exercised every day, there's not this crazy buildup of glycogen. And that's the key. But yeah. So um, you... Those horses are managed by reducing the amount of carbohydrates in the diet. Mm -hmm. Actually, most horses benefit from that, whether they have this or not. And then getting regular exercise every day to keep that buildup from happening. So we don't know why um, horses with really excessive uh, glycogen buildup in their muscle have this teardown of muscle. There's, so there's different ideas why that happens. But it's clear that for most horses that don't have mutations in these other genes, that's a kind of manageable condition. And that's been true throughout the history of horse domestication. Mm. And, and it's we, better off, you're better off doing 10 minutes a day than you are doing an hour and a half on the weekend. Exactly. So steady exercise and a good diet. 
Now, you know, the people that have horses that have tested positive for PSSM1 or the glycogen synthase mutation who are not able to manage it or who have other symptoms, um, they might be well advised to test for these other variants because uh, it's, it's quite, there's a pretty high incidence of these other variants. So the question is, you know, how can that be? How can the, when we first started doing this and we saw the incidence of some of these variants in different breeds, uh, some people said, well, that's impossible. How's it, how's it possible for the variants to be at this frequency? And again, it's the way we've managed horses has changed. So in the human diseases that are caused by mutations in these genes, the uh, age of onset is late. It could be 30s, 40s, or 50s. Um, there's even uh, one of these uh, mutations, not that we currently test for in humans, where um, there's evidence that people have superior athletic ability in their 20s. So there's something about the mutation that makes them better. And then in their mid-20s or early 30s, it really hits them. Mm. And uh, so we don't understand that either, even in humans, where there's a lot more money. So um, what happened you know, in the United States, in our history of using horses, when a horse could no longer do the work that it was supposed to do. I mean, nowadays people make it a pasture pet, but that's not what happened back in the old days. People made it into chili, right? So it was, you know, if a horse couldn't do the job that it was supposed to do, uh, people just killed it. Mm. So, you know, the age of onset for uh, PSSM2 uh, is typically quite a bit later uh, than it is for PSSM1, depending on the exact genotype. And how young can it appear in horses? Well, now we have to get a little bit technical. So um, with respect to any one of these, like the P2 variant, there's three genotypes. So you could be homozygous for P2, which is not good. You could be homozygous for wild type, which is great, or you could have one copy of the variant and one normal copy. So a horse has two copies of every gene. Mm -hmm. So if you look at P2, P3, and P4, and you say how many possible genotypes are there, given that each one is inherited independently and there's three genotypes, that's 27 genotypes. So one of them is completely normal. <clears throat> and the other 26 have some combination of variants. Mm -hmm. So having one bad copy of one of these genes and being clear for the others is, depending on the variant, is not terribly disabling most of the time. But be, having two bad copies or having one bad copy of multiple ones of these um, is, is not good. <clears throat> so we've seen horses that, uh, I mean, there's one case I know of where the horse had, was, had one copy of P2 and it had a kick injury right after birth. So there was a crush injury to muscle. Mm. And, and the horse was dead at less than a month old. Wow. So it was both trying to grow and trying to rebuild muscle. And all of these mutations affect the rate at which muscle could be regenerated. So one of the things that'll <clears throat> start symptoms in these horses is called negative nitrogen balance. So again, we get a little bit technical here. So uh, nitrogen is just, a, a, the main dietary source of nitrogen is amino acids from proteins. Mm -hmm. And nitrogen balance, you could either be in equilibrium, which most people are most of the time, you could be in positive nitrogen balance, and that means you're taking in more nitrogen than you're getting rid of. So that's a bodybuilder is doing that. You know, they're, they're damaging their muscle and then drinking protein shakes. So if you look at their dietary intake of nitrogen as amino acids, it's higher than their output of urea in their urine. 
So mm -hmm. they're in positive nitrogen balance and they're bulking up. And if you've ever had the flu, you notice that once you get out of bed after a bad bout of flu, you feel weak. And if you go into exercise, even just your regular exercise, there's weakness. And that's because you've actually torn down muscle. So muscle for uh, most mammals is a store of protein. And when you have a challenge like surgery or illness or uh, an injury that, that damages muscle, you can't possibly consume enough protein to allow the rebuilding of your muscle and, and the functioning of your immune system. So you tear down muscle to supply yourself with amino acids. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, horses with PSSM2 are very susceptible to negative nitrogen balance. So we've had horses that people have been able to manage, and then they get a viral infection and they collapse. So oh, yeah. on our website, we have a, a picture of a horse that lost 200 pounds in a month, and you can see it's all muscle out of the hindquarters. It's wow. just gone. And uh, sometimes those horses can recover and sometimes they can't. Um, I have personal experience with somebody who had a thoroughbred that was a P4 heterozygote. And they didn't know that. Um, the horse had what the vet thought was a seizure because suddenly it lost the use of three legs. And they thought, well, maybe this is HYPP. Uh, but it wasn't because potassium levels were normal. Mm -hmm. And the horse tested out as having a copy of P4. And I saw the horse two months after this, and it still had gait abnormalities. So it was still putting muscle back on. And it turns out it was a hoof abscess that triggered this. So wow. uh, even just dental work can trigger negative nitrogen balance. So mm -hmm. you have to be really careful about that. And that that's gets into both the, one and two, or is this more predisposed uh, that's, to? That's PSSM2. Two. So, uh, so there... Um, because they have difficulty rebuilding muscle, anything that causes muscle to tear down, they're going to have trouble rebuilding from that. So, um, you know, people have had horses that are completely asymptomatic until a viral infection or till they have dental work or until, you know, the horse does something stupid with a fence and has to get stitched up, right? You know, yeah. horses are really good at that. They are. And, then, and, and then they go into a, a you know, a decline and it might take a month of protein supplementation to get them out of that. So, you know, your vet will tell you, you know, your horse is herbivorous. You shouldn't give it too much protein. You'll blow out its kidneys. But if your horse has one of these defects um, it, and it's in negative nitrogen balance, it needs more protein. Yeah. So that could be whey or it could be uh, soy or pea protein. Or some people like to use uh, triaminos. So lysine, methionine, and, and, and threonine as a supplementation. That's why I've seen yeah. the lysine out there. People are recommending that a bit. Um, I had a question on that. What was my question on that? Come on. Why those three amino acids? Yeah, that, that could be it. Let's go there. Okay. <laughs> you answer that so, and I'll think about what my question was. Okay, so, amino, so to step back a bit, amino oh. acids are the building blocks of proteins, right? Yep. So, so you, a protein is a chain of amino acids. And there are two kinds of amino acids with respect to mammals. There are essential and non-essential ones. The non-essential ones we can synthesize and the essential ones we have to get from our diet. So our, our friends on the lower level of the evolutionary spectrum can make all of the amino acids. So bacteria and yeast and all that and plants can synthesize all their own amino acids and they don't have to take them in. But because we're constantly looking for calories as we roam around, we've lost the ability to synthesize some of the more complicated ones. And if you have friends that are vegetarians, um, they know about complementary proteins, right? So you have beans and rice together. Why do you do that? 
Well, most plant proteins, and so a horse diet, will be deficient in one or more amino acids that are the optimal mix. And if and and a horse's diet turns out to be deficient in three amino acids. So three amino acids are limiting. So lysine, methionine, and and a threonine are limiting in the horse's diet. Mm -hmm. So if you add whey protein, which is a complete protein, so whey protein from milk has all the essential amino acids in the right proportions. And you can also add complementary protein. So if you add soybeans to a horse diet or peas to a horse's diet, um, that has a different amino acid profile from the other stuff that they're eating. So it's complementary. So it's like eating beans and rice together. You get all the amino acids you need in the right proportions. Mm. And, so that's and this how that is a, works. a good reason to, because um, in my research and asking, I asked pretty much every horse person professional for the last month, do they know of this? And nutritionists knew about it. Um, yes. One who yes. all knew about it. So that's really important to touch base with your nutritionist because they can do a specific diet for your horse and the other one was hoof trimmers um, yes interestingly yeah, enough right. most everyone else didn't really know kind of knew sort of heard of it but they were the two who were um standing yeah. out now i remember my question now so with that muscle um wastage that happens and um, because of the protein how much pain, because we know that this is, oh, yeah. um, um, humans have had this, so we can't ask yes. a horse, but we can talk to right. humans who have a similar thing. How much pain a horse is in when they're right. losing this much protein and then having to grow that muscle back? Yeah, well, you definitely see that in terms of gait abnormalities. So when you talk to the people, if you go to YouTube and you search for limb girdle muscular dystrophy, there is a human patient who shows you, who's in pretty advanced stages, what it's like for him to walk, what it's like for him to stand up from a seated position. And it looks terribly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that he's in a lot of pain, uh, but you know, people with mutations in other genes that have the similar symptoms uh, say that it's terribly painful. And when they're having an episode of muscle breakdown, um, it is extremely painful. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a Netflix show called Diagnosis, and I got sucked into this because the very first episode, there's a human patient who went, you know, she goes on a short walk, and she used to be an athlete, and suddenly she has these terrible pains, and her urine is black. And all the horse owners are screaming at this video, that's what horses get, you know. And the doctors take a while to figure it out, but she has a mutation. <clears throat> that causes her muscles to break down. Mm. And it during the episode when her urine is black, which I have seen in a horse, that turns out to be extremely painful. Now, um, horses are prey animals, right? So they're, they're preyed upon by other things. That's, their, that's what they are. They don't eat other animals. Other animals eat them. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and so they have learned to hide when they're sick or in pain. They hide that. Because if there's a bunch of horses and one of them is limping along and showing signs of pain, that's the one that a predator is going to pick off. So it is adaptive for a prey animal to not show any signs of pain or illness. Mm -hmm. So they're not, I mean, horse owners can tell once they're tuned into this, yeah, this horse is obviously in distress, uh, but the horses are hiding it. And the way you see that is, you know, uh, people that have a, a, an affected horse that's having an episode, the horse will just be riding along and suddenly it'll buck them off or rear yeah. and just get them off their back. 
because, and they're like, well, I don't understand why this horse went crazy. It's just had an acute pain episode and got you off the back in a hard way. So once, once this has progressed to that stage, the horse has become unrideable. And we have had horses that have been described as, you know, unrideable since birth, which isn't really accurate because people don't try to ride them until they're two or three years old, Mm. but they've never been able to ride them. And that's how we found the P4 variant, or when we first found the P4 variant, we uh, wrote to one of the horse owners who had donated samples, and we said, okay, we think there's something wrong with this horse. And normally this person comes right back at us, and we didn't hear from her for two days. And she's like, I don't know what you're doing, but that horse has never been rideable. And the uh, horses related to that horse that have the same sire have exactly the same thing. And so it's just like, we just, we didn't know anything about the health history of these horses, but it was like, we just showed up on our ranch and said, this one, this one, and this one. And she said, whoa, you know, you have really got something going on there. Yeah. So yeah, it, it turns out to be, it, you know, if you're tuned into your horse and you kind of know when it's uncomfortable or it's acting abnormally, you can tell when your horse is in pain, you know, they put the ears back, they put the head down yeah. and and, and they've done they studies into the pain face as well. Yeah, yeah. And what about PSSM1 and tying up? Painful? <clears throat> um, yes, definitely. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that's not the only cause of a, a big tie-up. So um, I saw a, a, a firsthand a tie-up in Arabians, which is what tipped us off to B8, which is a new thing we test for. Um, and that looks awful. So... If you look at uh, Molly McHugh's first Facebook Live, she has some video of horses that have tied up from PSSM1. And the way you see that is they're taking these tiny little baby steps. They're obviously really stiff and their stride is like zero. And you just look at that horse and you say, wow, that looks like that hurts. And they've got their head down and they're, they're very short gated and mm-hmm. someone is leading the horse along and it doesn't want to move. So uh, with the Arabians, uh, we heard a story. So we positioned ourselves at, at an endurance event at Biltmore Manor, and we were at the vet trailer. So um, on an endurance event, so this is a 50-mile endurance event, they have spotters along the route. So if your horse is showing lameness, they'll pull the horse, and they'll kind of test it, and if they don't like it, they'll send it to the vet tent. So we were there, and we saw a full-blown tie-up in an Arabian that was free of PSSM1. And the, the urine was literally the color of Coca-Cola. Wow. And the horse could barely move. You could see that that was a problem. And they put 30 liters of saline into that horse to get it normal and not blow out its kidneys. And so while we were there, someone told us a story of a horse that tied up so bad um, it couldn't move and it was in the woods. And the vet brought the saline out to the horse. And they had the horse out there in the woods for 24 hours, putting saline through it before the horse could move. And if they hadn't done that, the horse would have died. Wow. And so that is because, so the black urine is the kidney shutting down because the muscles are? Um, the black urine, uh, the, the pigment is something called myoglobin. So, you know, we have hemoglobin, which is an oxygen carrying molecule in our red blood cells. Mm-hmm. Your muscles also have an oxygen-carrying molecule called myoglobin, which is related to hemoglobin. And as muscles break down, they release myoglobin into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And if there's a lot of myoglobin in the bloodstream, it goes straight through the kidneys, which is damaging. And you get that color in the urine, that that, uh, Coca-Cola color. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's an indication of uh, severe muscle damage. And if that horse isn't rescued through fluids, uh, it's going to get kidney damage. Mm, and, that's the, and so the saline is to flush the system. Yeah, just, just put a lot of fluid through the horse and dilute the stuff so it's not as hard as on the kidneys. Mm, great. Oh, this is such good information. I love having a podcast. I get all my own <laughs> questions answered. It's brilliant. Um, That's great. Okay. So also everyone, when they people talk about PSSM1, they go, yeah, quarter horses and warm bloods. How many breeds can get this condition, disease? <clears throat> PSSM1 is really widespread. So I think Molly yesterday said 25 different breeds. So <clears throat> all of the breeds are are relatively modern compared to this mutation. So um, <clears throat> the only breed that's, you know, there are a couple of breeds that are apparently free of it. So one is thoroughbreds. There's never been a recorded incidence of PSSM1 in a thoroughbred. That they've got enough of everything yeah. else going on. They don't need that. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> but it's also a closed breeding book, right? So you can't register yeah. thoroughbred unless both parents were registered thoroughbreds. Mm. So back when thoroughbreds got started, there were three founding stallions and 150 to 200 mares. And, you know, that's a sample. And then they were just bred for running real fast when they're three years old. So basically they didn't uh, include the GYS1 mutation. So as, as far as I know, and as far as Molly knows, no registered thoroughbred has ever tested positive for PSSM1. Mm-hmm. So if you have a thoroughbred, that has exercise intolerance, it does not have PSSM1. And the same thing is true for Arabians, but there's a little bit of hanky-panky there sometimes around the edges. So, you know, if yeah. something's not, you know, like, you know, sworn on, uh, you know, the on on the Prophet Muhammad, that this is a purebred Arabian, yeah. uh, it, it could possibly have PSSM1 because there's a little bit of playing with papers. But uh, yeah. thoroughbred people are really tight about that, so it, you just don't see it. Yeah. So. Uh, the incidence is quite high in draft breeds. And then you get into something interesting, again, that Molly touched on yesterday, is there's a different manifestation in different breeds. So draft breeds are these big, stoic, you know, gentle giants, and they don't show the same kind of distress that a quarter horse will show. So um, there, there's certainly a difference in what geneticists call the background. And the background is just the mutations that we don't know about, right? So draft horses, they're mellow, they're stoic, they'll just work all day without complaining. And the quarter horse is a little more flighty. And is that temperament or is that other uh, mutations that affect uh, carbohydrate metabolism? We don't really know at this point. But um, you will also see PSSM1 in different breeds. The only thing it's really conspicuously absent from is thoroughbreds and Arabians. That's a really important point. And what about um, passing it on? So if one stallion has the PSSM1 gene and Mm -hmm. he has, what are the the rates and numbers like for all of his sire? So there's um, two ways that you can be positive for this mutation. Uh, one is you could have one copy, and one, and the other is you could have two copies. Mm-hmm. So let's assume, for the sake of argument, that the mare in question is negative for PSSM1. Now, mm-hmm. Not mare testing isn't required, but responsible breeders really ought to test. So if the mare is negative and the stallion has one copy, uh, each foal has a fifty percent chance of inheriting that copy, and so you'll get a foal. Uh, half the foals will have two normal copies, 
and half the foals will have one copy of PSSM1, the PSSM1 mutation. Mm. Um, if the stallion has two bad copies, 100% of the foals will have one bad copy because they get one from mom and one from dad. So um, it's really important to test the stallions. Uh, so the reason the AQHA requires that is stallions scale and mares don't. So a mare can have you know, one uh, offspring a year, kind of, maybe less. Yeah. And stallions can have hundreds. Yeah. Right? So, you know, the other joke going around, not funny, is uh, PSS is popular sire syndrome. So, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. there some quarter horses. People say, oh, I love these bloodlines. And it turns out, you know, it's heterozygous for PSSM1 and people just breed it anyway. So you see these quarter horses that are in every pedigree. Thoroughbreds, it's even worse. But you see these quarter horses, they're very popular. And, and they're, you know, everybody wants those offspring. Um, but unless they're tested, you really should be careful about that. Mm -hmm. And so we know a bunch of stallion, and we have to be very careful about this. So I, I should have an aside here that all of our results are private to the persons uh, requesting the test. Mm -hmm. And people ask me all the time, what about these bloodlines? What about those bloodlines? And our privacy policy prevents us from commenting on that. Yeah. So, and that's important um, to get yeah, people we, coming forward. Yeah. Yeah. But we know that there are some popular quarter horse stallions that carry one or more of our variants. Get and they have, had, they have had hundreds of offspring. So um, our turnaround isn't as fast as people would like. People would like us to have the test results before they mail the sample. Uh, so we can't quite achieve that. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, uh, if they use it for a pre-purchase exam, we have people that have had bad experiences and had to euthanize horses. And they say, I'll never buy another horse without testing. Hmm. So they can work it out with the seller. You know, we can, uh, you know, I'll put some money down. And we'll wait until, you know, they write a contract that says, if this horse comes back clear for these variants, I'll buy it. If it comes back positive, you keep the money I've given you. And of course, I paid for the test and mm -hmm. I won't tell anybody. Right. So they'll just sell it to somebody else. Right. So unfortunately, uh, these horses do make their way on the market. So uh, I, I don't want to just bash breeders. We have some breeders that are very forward looking that years ago when we were just starting, they wanted a clean herd. And mm -hmm. so they said, I'm going to take the economic hit right now uh, on the assumption that you guys are right and there's going to be a premium paid for horses that are clear of these variants. Yeah. So we have a lot of people now Smart doing it as breeders. part of pre-purchase exam or breeders that say, I want a clean herd or I'm considering buying a stallion and it's a one-year-old, right? And they're like, I'm not going to buy this uh, if it's positive for any of these things yeah. because I want to Hurt. And I think those people are going to be rewarded, but of course you'd expect me to say that. I I believe you that it's to be they'll be rewarded as well. And also, you know, you can sit back and you can bash the breeder, or you can just take personal responsibility. And that's what a part of this podcast. Um, why I wanted to do this podcast to get sure. it out there and just go add it to your tests of of what you can do. Um, here in Australia, we only do have the PSSM one testing. Um, and I believe it's um, you, yourselves in America and there's someone in Germany who also yes. does the PSSM2. Right. So, right. And we can so, send tests across as well, can't we? Yes. So um, Center for Animal Genetics in Germany can do these tests from hair. Mm -hmm. And because we're small and because the USDA rules, what we'll do is send a blood card. So we send a little card. You put a couple drops of blood on that. It dries. The, the, the paper is impregnated with a bunch of chemicals. It's very clever. So the dried blood has the DNA that we need. And it can't possibly um, 
transmit any diseases or parasites. So um, it's easy to mail that to the United States without an import permit. Mm -hmm. uh, and with CAG, they can take hair, but you have to do some import paperwork. So we've had problems. I guess they've had problems with the stuff just getting stopped at the border because it doesn't have the right papers. And sometimes even our blood cards gets, not in Australia, but I think New Zealand, we had some problems with, they just wouldn't let the blood cards in because they didn't understand what it was. And it was coming from the United States and they figured it was COVID-19. So Totally, totally. They would have, because they would have been non-horse people looking at it. So they wouldn't have had a clue yeah, what they were looking at. They would have freaked them out. Yeah, um, so the blood the card's a, a good solution. And, and does the vet need to take the blood or can we take the blood ourselves? Uh, well, in the United States, people can take the blood themselves and it depends by country. So there are countries in Europe that have this law that you can't stick a needle in a horse. Only a vet can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's, you know, to look at it kind of cynically, that is certainly a full employment for equine vets program. But, you know, uh, yep. in the United States, things are a lot more casual. And so we've had uh, horse owners send us 10 mil EDTA blood draws so they can do that. I mean, the horse jugular vein is pretty easy to find. And they're good at it and they put a little rubbing alcohol and they do it. But a couple drops of blood out of a, you know, 1400 pound horse isn't going to hurt it. So yeah. it really depends on the local laws. So again, in some countries in Europe, they're very strict about that. No one, no one can break a horse's skin unless they have a DDM and other countries, you know, it's, it's like the wild west out here in the United States. And yeah, if you want to put a couple of <laughs> drops of blood on a blood guard, you go right ahead. Yeah. So, well, I know here in Australia, you can um, inject your own horse. So they will yeah, be so if you, can, if you can inject, you can, yeah, you can draw a couple drops of blood. It's not a big deal. So uh, horses shed a lot more than that when they get stupid about fences. You know, yeah, as you know. exactly. Um, and is that blood for both PSSM1 and PSSM2? I know here in Australia, it's just a hair test for PSSM1. How do you test yeah, for that? So um, the test is for DNA, right? So, so mm -hmm. uh, blood has DNA in it, hair has DNA in it. So it's really just the USDA requirements. So, Got it. uh, so it's the same accept, for, all, for all tests. It's just DNA is DNA, right? Yeah. So. Great. Now let's go back to management a little bit more. So right. PSSM1, the basics are gentle exercise every day and if your horse is tied up it's very gentle exercise until they can get moving but exercise mm -hmm. is actually good for them on a daily basis mm -hmm. taking the sugars out of the feed and that's it basically so just reduce um so they'll have recommended uh, levels of non-structural carbohydrates mm -hmm. and you don't want to exceed those and um, the other thing I'll say, and this is something that Molly made clear yesterday, is, is people you know, on the forums and Facebook will say, well, give me a diet for my horse. It's like, well, it kind of depends on what level of work your horse is doing, right? Yeah. So if your horse is not doing a lot of work and just gets ridden every other weekend, um, you, know, you have to make up those uh, calories somehow. But if your horse is not doing a lot of work, and people say, well, you add oil to make up for the calories. Well, if your horse is trail riding 50 miles a day, yeah, you probably have to add oil. But if your horse is fat because <laughs> it's not getting enough exercise, you don't need to add the oil. So the main thing is just cut back on the sugars and, and see how your horse is doing. And this is when it's useful to talk to an equine nutri nutritionist. Yeah. You know, how much does your horse weigh? How much exercise does it get? Is it an easy keeper? Is it a hard keeper? Does it get fat every time it walks past the hay bale? Or is it skinny, you know, no matter if it, it, it eats as much as it wants, right? So those yeah. are all things that a nutritionist 
will take into account when designing a diet for your horse. So that's why it's not possible just say, oh, you know, this much per hundred pounds of horse. Because like, if you do that with people, you know, you, you don't get a good outcome either. So, uh, so you, you have to tailor it to, you know, what is your horse's metabolism like and how much work is it doing? And how, and big is it? how soon should you start seeing results once you start managing? Uh, well, with, uh, with PSSM1, it, uh, people have seen results in, a, you know, in a weeks or months, right? And with PSSM2, we have a bunch of people that say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure if I want to test yet. My horse tested negative for PSSM1. Why don't I just try the PSSM2 diet? which is supplementation with protein and let's see how it does. And they've seen improvement in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and, uh, and then they test and it turns out their horse is positive for one of our other variants. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of been the most rewarding thing about it. And by the way, that's not our idea. So when we came, we started in 2015 and this kind of advice was being given by Stephanie Valberg. If you're, if your horse has PSS and to try protein supplementation, because they can see the horse's muscles are breaking down. So they kind of guessed that protein supplementation might work. And the, the practical experience from horse owners is, yes, that works. Now, there are not peer-reviewed studies that says that that's what you should do. Mm-hmm. So vets aren't really tuned into that. But the practical experience of horse owners that, that either uh, have confirmed PSSM2 or suspected is that protein supplementation can turn it around kind of quickly. Now, if the horse has had a really bad episode, like a viral infection or an injury or surgery or something like that, it's not going to bounce right back from that. And if it's 12 years old and has been declining for years, it's not going to come zipping back. So the other thing that I've not said is the diseases are all progressive in humans. They're progressive and irreversible. Mm -hmm. So um, they just, the symptoms just continue to get worse uh, until uh, in humans, what happens is people die of respiratory failure, typically Mm -hmm. at night. So that's because the diaphragm is also skeletal muscle. And so the, at the end stage, there'll be breathing difficulty. So in horses that are affected, they typically don't get to that point. I mean, people will see respiratory symptoms, but the horse by then is exhibiting so many signs of pain and weakness that they typically decide to euthanize. And that was so, the, the big thing when I was discussing this with friends before when we were having testing done but hadn't had the results. And I was like, I will not hesitate to euthanize um, right. if you know, and not immediately, but um, if you know your horse is in pain. So that was, that was right. one of my main right. questions and what I want horse people to understand. Are you managing your horse to have going from, 10 out of 10 pain to five out of 10 pain, or can you get them back to zero amount of pain? And then it generally just, the pain grows over time. Do you know the answer to that? Um, Well, certainly it's going to depend on the horse and genotypes. Remember that there's 26 different genotypes, even with respect to the three genes that we've talked about. So, uh, you know, it's going to depend on that. It depends how far the horse has gone. So like if they say, well, my horse is 18 years old and suddenly it's not rideable. And you say, well, let's look at, you know, do you have photos of it from two years ago? And there's massive muscle wastage in the hindquarters. That horse is not going to come bouncing back because you added some stuff to the diet. But if the horse is, you know, if the horse is kind of young and you've noticed the first symptoms and you get tested and you say, let's get aggressive about the protein supplementation, um, then, you know, you can stave off. The, the problem, but but really uh, ultimately it depends on you and your vet. I mean, so horse owners 
Uh, most horse owners are really good with their horses and I've been really impressed with, you know, they know their horses, they know when their horses are in pain yeah, and, and they a know conversation. When it's time. Yeah. And a conversation mm-hmm. between you and your vet, when you think it might be time, the vet's not going to euthanize a healthy horse mm-hmm. uh, and the vet's not going to euthanize a horse that's uh, not in pain. Yeah. So uh, one of the things people say to us is, well, you know, it's really irresponsible for you to be selling these tests because there are horses that are being euthanized because of the test results. And that is not true. Uh, no vet is going to euthanize a horse that's not exhibiting uh, serious symptoms. Yeah, but they they do, both PSSM1 and PSSM2 will degenerate over time. Um, PSSM1 alone, without any of these other mutations, um, they don't appear to do that. So they can be managed for the life of the horse. Correct. But again, that's, that's a disease state with a diagnosis of that one gene. Yes. If that horse has these other variants... Um, that horse could be degenerating. And people mm-hmm. say, I don't understand why some horses with PSSM1 are manageable and some are not. And it's because of these other genes, probably. So um, if, if the horse is degenerating and it's not improving and it's obviously in pain and you've done everything by the PSSM1 diet, it's probably um, other genetic variants on top of that that are making it impossible to manage. Mm. But probably PSSM1 by itself without any of these other mutations is manageable, probably. Yeah, and I think that's what I've seen. It's um, it's really interesting once you you get into it and look, and there are people managing PSSM one really well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's they're still out riding, they're still eventing, they're sure. still doing everything, and then they just get that one moment where they go, "Oh, we're having bad days." Yeah, yep. well, especially for stallions, right? They're like, "Okay, this horse is twelve and it's fine, and it's had hundreds of offspring." It's like, "Oops, you know, maybe yeah. that wasn't the best idea." Yeah, absolutely. Now I remember um, reading a post of yours, and it it was saying something about um, things to look for in your horses as well. And it had something like um, stifle at an early age, the bunny hopping, <coughs> things like right, that. Can you right. go through that? Sure. So um, the, the first thing to say about that is um, the first symptoms will be changes in that are perceived as changes in temperament. You know, this has always been a gentle horse that always wanted to do what it wanted. And suddenly it bucked me off. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one of the first signs is just sudden pain episodes. But the other thing that's very common and is an early sign are changes in gait. And there's another group um, that on Facebook that, that uh, PSSM awareness uh, that's UK based that has made some fantastic videos and the most important gate to look at is canter. Mm-hmm. So that is the hardest gate for a horse with uh, muscle disease to sustain. So uh, a canter gate, I mean, I'm not a horse person, but I, I've learned to see this is front leg, you know, hind leg, yeah. front leg, hind leg. So it's yep. like these four beats. Mm-hmm. And what you'll see in <clears throat> a horse that has these gait abnormalities is it'll do what's called bunny hopping. So it'll put the foreleg down and then both hind legs will come up together like a jackrabbit, you know, Mm -hmm. and it will not operate the hind legs independently. Um, You'll also see cross firing. So again, you know, I can see it in a slow motion video if somebody has four different colored tapes on the four legs. But uh, most, most horse people can say, yeah, this canter is no good. And so this PSSM awareness group, has a fantastic YouTube video that's 10 minutes long that is showing all the canter defects 
one at a time. And even I can see them and, and they're slowed down. So you can see there's something, you know, a horse will go into the canter, but it won't be able to sustain it. It'll drop back out or it'll bunny hop. Mm-hmm. The other thing they do is um, called rope walking. And, th- and this isn't at canter. It's just even at walking. Um, so like a circus performer walks a tight rope by putting one foot right in, the o- in front of the other. So typically this is the hind legs. And so the horse will put the foot on the center line and then swing the other rear foot in front of it and put it like it's walking a tightrope. And sometimes it's just the rear legs and sometimes it's all four legs. And that, um, that turns out to be pretty recognizable also. And if you look at the humans that have limb girdle muscular dystrophy and their videos uh, of them walking, it looks like that. So they're kind of swinging their legs around and planting them in front of them because of muscle weakness in the pelvic girdle. And uh, so, so that's a real characteristic gait abnormality. Yeah, but, I'm glad uh, again, you can the, see it because we had horses that we could barely get into a trot <coughs> and certainly couldn't get into sure. a canter. <clears throat> so we have someone um, on our team that I was talking about before, uh, L. Newlands, uh, who has one of the, the first horse that was the, uh, where we identified the P3 variant. And she just looks at horses. If she's looking at a horse in an arena, she can tell you whether it has PSSM2 or not. And I I say that people should just pay her because it's cheaper than the test. (laughs) Just have her look at your horse. And when she's she's convinced people to have a horse tested that had gait abnormalities, 100% of the time she's been right. And I'm like, boy, you have an eye for this, right? And I'm developing it. So I was at a horse event, you know, back when we could travel. And, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's horses entering this arena <clears throat> excuse me, and somebody's just reading off, you know, all the virtues of this pedigree, and I'm looking at the horse, and I can see the gait abnormality. Uh, and there was a person yeah. sitting next to me, and they said, what's the matter? And I said, look at how that horse's hind legs are moving. And I described it, and they go like, right, I get it, right? And then a couple horses later, another horse comes out, and I guess I didn't even realize it, but I stood up, right? <laughs> and this person sitting next to me said, this one too, right? And I said, yes. So as soon as you know what you're looking for, you can see it. Mm. And, and everyone's all hung up on, look at the famous bloodlines, look at the famous ancestors, but it's like, just look at the gait, especially at canter. And you can see if a horse is short gated, if it's doing jumps, it'll just lift its hind legs like dead weight instead of using it to propel it over the jump. So it's mostly the hind legs that appear to be affected. <clears throat> the other thing you'll see, if the horse is barefoot, you'll see uh, uneven wear. And what you'll see is the, um, the front part of the front hooves are worn down. So that's a gait abnormality where the horse is pulling itself forward with the forelegs instead of propelling itself forward with the hind legs. So that's an indication of hind limb weakness. And that's also a sign. So uneven wear in a barefoot horse. And this is probably why um, your, um, your farriers are attuned to this. They'll say, okay, there's something wrong with the way this horse is moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, a barefoot trimmer will say, you know, this is not how the hooves are supposed to wear down. This horse is pulling itself forward with its uh, forelegs instead mm-hmm. of propelling itself with the hind. So all of those things, and, and I should add, I don't know anything about horses. Right? All, of this, <laughs> all of this is from talking to people. So, so I understand mammals and I understand genetics and everything that I know about horses has been um, help offered by people who have them. So when we first started recruiting horses on Facebook, people would post 
the photos and the videos and everything I've told you about, I have learned from horse owners. It was not easily predicted. And, and now that movement stuff is what in part led us to the human disorders, where if you're looking at human patients that move like that and you show that to a horse person, they go, that is my horse. Mm. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's really it. Yeah. And it's, it's great to hear those things as well. Um, I've my young horse, it's like, I know there's something, but I just can't put my finger on it. And uh, now I know what to look for. Now I know exactly what to look for. So I know yeah, what we'll so be doing this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So there's also, um, you know, uh, we have a, someone who's worked at our company, Kirsten Dimmler, uh, who's going to be going off to grad school at the University of Minnesota. <clears throat> and her sister's horse was supposedly fine. Right. And she had all her horses tested for free because she works for us. Mm. And uh, she said, well, this this horse is a P4 heterozygote, but I don't see anything. And I just didn't say anything. And then she came in after one weekend. She said, I finally rode my sister's horse. Yeah, clearly the horse is symptomatic. Right. Mm. So once you're attuned to what's wrong and, uh, you know, I, the horse lingo for for the diagnosis is uh, AQR in the United States. So ain't quite right. Yeah. <laughs> right? so if your horse is aqr that is uh something to look at now it's not everything so certainly a vet should look at your horse you should have a radiographic exam you know is there some kind of stifle injury you know is Mm -hmm. there other are there other radiographic findings but if it's just the gait abnormalities there's no radiographic findings and your horse doesn't have some of the other disease conditions like epm or lyme disease that might mimic these things um it's probably this Mm, yeah and that's um i think it's something that hasn't been on the list for probably 80 percent of horse people in the world and um, i'm hoping that the whole point of this podcast is to hopefully bring it to the minds of a hell of a lot more people so that we um we just have the awareness of of what to look for and and uh, we don't have to rush out and grab the vet if we're if we're (laughs) afraid we can actually just look at the gate and sure. uh, and hook into all of these um, all of these resources that I'll put in the links as well. What have we missed, Paul? Is there anything else we need to cover? Wow, I mean, I I think I want to step back and say that um, all of this stuff, like what's wrong with my horse, it's all differential diagnosis. So you're talking to your vet, your nutritionist. What are the horse's symptoms? And they're going to say, okay, do we see this but not that? You know, and they're going down a decision tree. And um, for most of the people whose horses have test positive, the vets have said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they might have even done a muscle biopsy, which might or might not indicate anything. Because the muscle biopsy the- is only relative to the moment in time that it's taken. That's right. And so by the time you're seeing abnormalities in muscle biopsy, the horse is pretty far gone. Mm-hmm. And again, that's subjective. Different labs interpret it differently. So, so again, it's, it's differential diagnosis. And it's very important to work with your vet to eliminate other possible causes of exercise intolerance. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, again, to emphasize something I said at the beginning, uh, these are experimental tests. They're not yet published in peer-reviewed journals. So a lot of people go to their vets and their vets are like, look, you know, I didn't see this in a vet journal. So you know, I'm going to use the standard of care. And you can't fault your vet for doing that. You don't want your vet to change the way they practice medicine because of rumors on the internet, which is what unpublished scientific stuff is, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so some stuff that is peer-reviewed is correct. Some stuff that is peer-reviewed is not correct. 
Some stuff that is not peer-reviewed is correct, and some stuff that is not peer-reviewed is not correct, right? So you don't really know, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think we've been pretty pleased with the feedback that we've gotten from horse owners, and we've been pretty pleased about uh, the stories that we've gotten. So people have wasted tens of thousands of dollars on inconclusive tests, and then it turns out they do our test and, and they find out what's going on. And, but really the first step is know your horse, talk to your horse, um, look for the obvious signs, which is the shifting lameness and the gait abnormalities, mm -hmm. and work with your vet to get a good outcome for your horse. And for breeders, if any breeders are listening, um, this, is, this is something you might want to get ahead of because it's not um, that big a deal and we have bulk discounts if you do a bunch of tests at once. Uh, if, if you get ahead of this and we're right, you're going to get a premium for your horses yeah. that you're breeding. Yeah, absolutely. We, we'd now, like to see people be responsible about this. Yeah, in every level, from the breeders to the to the everyday horse person like me who tears yeah. their hair out going, what on earth is this? Is just For to sure. keep keep doing it. And, and you know yourself as a horse owner and as a parent, it's like when you haven't got the answer, sometimes all you know is you haven't found the answer yet. And right. again, that's why I want to get this out there so we can add something else to the toolkit and go, well, maybe I've heard about this. Let's test. Let's test. So the, the last pitch is our colleagues at the University of Minnesota are doing a really large study to validate this. So they'd like to include 3,000 horses. Uh, the, the study just opened up recently. And uh, you can go to their site or you can post the link to this University of Minnesota study. Ideally, they'd like an affected and unaffected horse of the same breed uh, being kept at the same place. But if you don't have that, if you just have a severely affected horse, you can enroll your horse in this study and they can accept horses from all over the world now. And is that for so, PSSM one and two, or is that just two? Um, they're going to, they're going to look at everything. So even people that don't have uh, a diagnosis, if they have one horse that uh, ain't quite right and another horse that is, and they're similar age being kept under similar circumstances, that's perfect for them. And they will test for, I mean, you won't get the results back fast, mm -hmm. but they will test for a bunch of different genetic variants, all of ours, including ones that are not commercial tests yet, and PSSM1 and a couple of other things. So they're going to do a comprehensive genetic panel, and they're going to do very detailed phenotyping. So they ask you to submit uh, photos and videos of the horse so they can see exactly what's wrong with it. So that is really, that's going to take a couple of years for them to get to 3,000 horses. Mm -hmm. But uh, if people really want to help horses and find out what's going on, um, that's a really good thing for people to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I may know somebody who's got that. So uh, I'll, I'll be putting them onto it. That's amazing. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. I've been, yeah, really, this has been great. really looking yeah. forward to this. And I feel like um, I came into this with a little bit of research, but no real understanding because there's so much out there. And yes. um, and after looking online, I, yours was the name that kept popping up and, and you were so clear on what it is that you knew. So I knew you were the person that I really wanted to talk to to get this out. And I feel like we've answered all the questions now. And That's I fantastic. have a great understanding and I can actually just instead of going, look, I think it's got something to do with glycogen, but I don't really know what that means. And now I can actually have an intelligent conversation about this. Yeah, that's great. And certainly there's nothing like a video. So if, if uh, yeah. a picture is worth a thousand words, a, a YouTube video is worth a million words. Yeah. So look up the people with limb girdle muscular dystrophy yeah. and look up the videos from the PSSM awareness group on the uh, gate defects at Cantor. Yeah, and I absolutely. think it's really going to open your eyes to this. Yeah. Yep, and I'll put all those links in the show notes so we can all just 
become more aware and educate ourselves because that's what we're here to do. But thank you that's so fantastic. much for your time, Paul. All right, thank you. Um, and I really appreciate it. Let's hope for a brighter future with healthier horses and happier owners. Look, thanks to what you're doing, you know, and it's because of what you're doing that we're going to have that. So, um, so it's really important work that you're doing and I'm so glad that you fell into it as a non-horse person. I think I appreciate it even more. Well, thanks so much. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.